Hello, everybody. This is Stephen Hodges for Talking Blues. I'm here with my friend Mako Funasaka. Wow. <laughs> did I pronounce it right? You did. I'm, I'm really checking those phonetics out in the spelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. <laughs> Just witness to your sound check. Yeah, um, we were there a few hours before the gig, and you're sitting there tuning the drums. What's it like to play a different set of drums every night you play? Well, you know, um, it's it's not as crazy as you might think. Um, backline is what it's called when you rent the drums and the guitar amps, right. and traveling groups do this a lot, and. They've gotten very, very well equipped. So they really bring you pretty much what you ask for every time. So I just asked for some Yamaha drums and um, it's just, I've, I, I could tune a drum before I got with Mavis, but after 13 years of tuning a drum set for every gig we do, I definitely have improved my tuning. So. <laughs> The, the, the main thing is just getting the drums in tune. And sometimes people have put the heads on in kind of a strange way and it, make it makes it hard to find the high parts and the low parts to even things out. But it's just, a, it's just sort of this Zen process you'd go through every, every day. And in and, and the Zen process, this is you thinking about the gig? Is it just about tuning? Like what's going through your mind yeah, when you're sitting well, there? that each you know as i go i do think about this and it it really is that i kind of have a pitch in mind that it seems to sort of resonate with me for each of the the high the medium the middle and the low of the tom toms and so um i just go after both heads the bottom and the top and and just sort of bring him into the pitch that i hear and um and once they get kind of balanced out we're good now, you, tonight you're playing at Kerner Hall, which is one of the most beautiful yeah, venues in, in... It's so European, and yeah. the woodwork is amazing. Yeah, so when you're ceiling. sitting there, do you, see, do you hear that immediately as you're tuning the drums? You know, you get a sense of every room that you play in as far as... Um, you can almost just step on the bass drum for starters and see where the low end is because some rooms have a real boomy low end, some have no low end to speak of, and then some are just cozy right in the middle, you know, give you give you all your frequencies. Um, acoustics are crazy things, crazy little things, you know, and they... And it's it's a little bit tricky, but you really, I guess that was, I guess when you bring that up, I remember being in high school and not having much experience except playing in certain rooms at, say, the band room at school. Right. And you go play a concert out somewhere and the acoustics are completely different and you're completely thrown because it's not comfortable. So you kind of learn to be comfortable in all these different environments, inside, outside, it just kind of goes after you played enough gigs. And is that you don't really sweat it? The the comfort is that a mental thing or is that a physical thing that you play differently? When when the acoustics are real, you know, are when they're really good and you kind of have this coziness and this sort of cocoon around you as as all the, your your instruments are all singing. But when it's not so good. You're playing, but the, there's no resonance. It's kind of like you're hitting the drums, but they don't really, there's no cocoon because there's there's no acoustics in the environment to keep the shroud around you. It just kind of goes away. It flies out. And that's not comfortable. Right. But you have to learn to work when you're not comfortable because the people don't care that, you don't have your favorite acoustics. They don't know the difference. So um, you just... And also then, if things are really bad, you maybe get a little bit in your monitor. You, you get them to put a little bit in your monitor, to put a little back, that coziness back into your your surrounding area, in your drum, in your drum area, yeah. 
I mean, today you had the luxury of actually being there a few hours early and sure. tuning your drums and and then playing an, a number or a few numbers with your band. But when you play a big festival, as you have, mm-hmm. and you pretty well get up there and play, right? right? Like you don't really have sound check. No, you do line, you do line check more or less there. The thing about festivals, there's a couple of different kinds. There's the ones where they rent drums for everybody. So you get there early and they go, okay, Mavis Staples drums, they're over there. And so you go over there and you set them up the way you like. And, and when it's quiet, you tune up and you're on some riser off the stage and you get everything the way you like it, then they just roll you on, and things are pretty cool. Then there's the festivals where everybody's playing the same drum set, and so then you just wait your turn, and you go out there and kind of adjust them and then find out if anybody's tuned these or not, and half the time they haven't. They're just all (laughs) flapping and flopping drum heads and everything, and you just tune them up a bit and have at it. So... You had specified a certain type of drums for tonight. Right. Um, in a case like that, in, in a festival where you don't have that option and you're playing somebody else's Ludwigs or whatever, right. how different is that for you? It's not really that much. They're pretty much, a, a good drum is a good drum, no matter who makes it, honestly. Yeah. But but you carry around your own snare. You, yeah, that's, oh. that, that's just one less drum for me to tune. And it's also such a key sound in the in the sound of the drums that it's i think it's it's makes it easier for everybody else as well as me to 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 hear something they hear the same every time and then the other yeah. thing you do is carry your cymbals and your bass pe- bass yeah, drum pedal i started carrying a bass drum pedal because even the high price pedals sometimes they bring them and there might be one little thing wrong and it really makes a difference it's you have to be really geeky to keep drum equipment in in line. Right. So just easier for me to bring my pedal. I just set it up. I don't sweat it, and it's a big deal because the kick drum and the snare drum are the most important drums out of the kit. You could toss all the tom toms. You could even toss all the cymbals out, and just play snare and hi hat and bass drum and get the job done just fine. You know, because those are really the voices that use are used most in Mavis's music. So why but do you carry the symbols? The symbols because they really do help, you know, and they are a color and I you know, I think there are times when it really makes a difference to have them there. Yeah. How many different drum sets do you have at home? I don't know, about 4 maybe. And is there a reason four or five. Like, so if you have a certain type of gig you would take drum set A? Yeah. Or- there's a couple that are for you know for kind of in similar in size, but I have like a 18 inch bass drum kit that is sort of your traditional blue note jazz kit with the 18 inch bass drum, 12 inch rack tom, and the 14 inch floor tom. I guess my thing is that I have a range of bass drums and and, and tom toms to fill the gaps as well in it, but. Um, but the large bass drum that I use with John Hammond or Tom Waits, the 32-inch, I use that with James Harmon as well. The 32-inch is like the really big sort of old-school bluesy. Right. You know. Or if somebody wants to get really crazy and turn it up loud, there's, it's a whole could be a whole other thing too. <laughs> but um, but yeah, kind of it, it just depends on the job to which which drum is more apropos. So how did you start with the drums? How did that all begin? Well, first I started with piano because I came from a family where everybody learned to dance and play the piano. (laughs) And all my uncles and aunts had done the same thing because my grandmother required it. And so my mom got us going with the piano, and that was fine. But somehow it, it didn't quite stick. It's hard to learn something in a vacuum if if you don't play with other people right you don't quite understand what you know solo piano it's a beautiful thing but not everybody's motivated to just play by themselves but are we talking like folk songs like what what well, we you learn like bach and mozart and you know that's and, what your family popular. was dancing to 
No, they were dancing to dance music, but the piano, you know, okay. you you learn your basic dun, 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 Bach minuet in G, I think it is. Right. But so that kind of that was a good start, but that kind of faded and then a good family friend was was in a surf band, which surf bands are really popular. The Beat Beatles hadn't hit quite yet. And um I said, "Let's try the drums." And that seemed to stick. Immediately? So that was about fifth grade. Yeah. Did it stick immediately? Like we just. Well, I you know I mean you play in school and um, then you with your paper out you buy you're buying like one drum at a time <laughs> to make a drum set. You know your parents chip in half, you pay half. You get a bass drum. You've already got a snare drum, and you get a cymbal, and you get a tom. Sooner or later, you have a whole kit. And did you fall in love with the instrument very quickly? Uh, I Yeah, I guess. I mean, I wasn't aware that I was in love with it or anything, but it, it was something I really gravitated towards. And I wasn't the greatest book student. These days, they probably would have diagnosed me with something, you know, and had maybe had some way of helping me, you know, get my shit together. So... So music was like my saving grace. Music saved my ass, period, in school. Yeah. Wow. Big time. Um, yeah. So what were you playing? Mainly surf music or? Honestly, I was playing more in school, really. You know, other kids were actually excelling at being in bands more than I was. I was, I guess, I. you know, I'm not sure that I was that aware of, of what it all entailed. I didn't have anybody talking to me about it or anything so I was just kind of discovering on my own and then when I started rubbing shoulders with people in junior high and high school they became more aware of you know drum set drumming and I don't know just the whole you know taking in a bigger picture of the whole thing and I started getting more comfortable with with being in bands and stuff and started playing in the jazz band at school and I excelled at that. Which drummers would have been an influence to yeah, you? Yeah, well, you know, of course, like all of the the rock and roll guys hit me first. So there's there's Ringo and there's Charlie Watts and there's John Bonham and, um, you know, we all were listening to Al Jackson Jr., whether we knew it or not, because right. he's on all the stack stuff. So Al Jackson was one of them. And then the and then the the jazz guys started seeping in, you know, with the Max Roach and Art Blakey and Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and Jack DeJanet. She's a list. Ayerto, the list can just go on and on. But right. Those are some of the. But initially, is it correct to say that you went down the path of blues? Blues was like something that came um, later. Um, I was basically kind of more into jazz, really, and, and rock and roll. But most, more, they always called me a jazz drummer, not a rock and roll drummer, I guess, because I didn't come in slamming and banging away or something. I'm, I'm not quite sure, because I can play some rock and roll as well. But, um, but yeah, I guess the jazz really kind of turned me on the most at first. Yeah. And did you think one day you would become a jazz drummer? Um. I guess I've always been sort of a jazz drummer. It's just I don't really do jazz gigs. They're, they don't pay that well, and they're not that many gigs. So you kind of gravitate towards where you're going to be able to play a lot. And back when I started, you could play seven nights a week. You, we, we literally would park our instruments on the stage of the local steakhouse, bar, you know, surf and turf restaurant, and they would stay there for months on end. We'd play five, six nights a week. Right. And people didn't mind that they weren't switching the bands around. But and then showcasing and all of that came in the 80s to where there were just a lot more bands and club owners started shifting around their policy of mixing their bands up a lot more. And so the, the, the steady gigs were farther and fewer between. And did you see that? Like, was it quite obvious that things were changing? Yeah. we. I mean, even with James 
James Harmon was the last guy, the blues guy that I started working with in the eight, early 80. And we still got to play like seven nights a week. We were popular and we played a lot. But then mid 80s, things shifted. And, and, and if you could get a gig that you played once a week, that a residency of once a week was a big deal. Things had really shifted. Uh, and also, little by little, the girls wanted to dance to records. The girls wanted to dance to more manicured music. Now, your Grateful Dead ladies and your reggae ladies and what have you. Because if the girls show up, the boys follow, right? Right. Yeah. So the the blues club or the rock and roll club might have be half full, but the girls in the in the short skirts are are lined up down the sidewalk trying to get in that noisy bar just three doors down where they're just spinning records and that's kind of the reality of things is that a lot of people would rather dance to a dj than mm -hmm. they would like to dance to a band so how did that affect you as a musician less work did you do other things um yeah, you just you you just you just do a gig here, you do a gig there, you know, um and then certain clubs just gave up completely. So, you know, there were just a lot less gigs to be done the way it used to be more easy to do. Yeah. A lot more work, yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Well, I'm not sure I had a choice. Because it just seemed like it was the thing I was the best at. And and then by the time I was that age, I really I really was deep into it. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, and then when, you know, like in in the early 80s, that's when I started playing gigs up in, in L.A. where they're miking my drums and we're playing through real PA systems and stuff. You know, before then, you're just in a bar, no monitors, no nothing. You just set up and play. But um, so like early 80s, that's where I'm playing up in L.A. with James Harmon and we're, we're, we're doing well. And people like Tom Waits and different people are coming, T-Bone Burnett are coming around and um, so Tom hires me uh, to do a record and T-Bone hire, you know, it's like people being aware of you and all of that. And uh, so that that was kind of inspiring for sure that early on um, somebody as formidable as Tom Waits is, is hiring me to be on Swordfish Trebones where it's his new that's his turning point. Mm -hmm. That's when he got to be the Tom Waits we know today. He's no more jazz trio, no more ride cymbal. You never play a cymbal in Tom's music. He doesn't want to hear cymbals anymore. I yeah. wonder, so when I listen to some of the stuff that you do, it reminds me, like, there's a difference to me between being a drummer and being a percussionist. Right. And I don't know if anybody starts being a percussionist. I think some people graduate to being. Right. So was there a point where you beca you became more than a drummer and become became percussionist? And if so, how did that happen? Okay, well, I I I kind of think I was always kind of predisposed to more colors than just the drum set. Okay. But especially in college, I started working in the dance department. So I'm accompanying dance, and then I'm playing and composing music for dance theater how are you composing on the piano or on well the drums? you know with other people um sort of you know working on melodies with them and then me taking care of the rhythm parts and what have you but um yeah it, it was i guess ha having been in the orchestra i was already aware of mallets right, right? the little cotton balls on the end of the stick so that was already kind of like wow um the rock and roll guys are like what are those you know? 
that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and what are those wire things, <laughs> those brushes? So those are two of the most basic things that are different than sticks that, you know. But then there's just a, a whole range of percussion things, you know, after all of that. And it just sort of seemed that the percussion you know, with my love for like Brazilian and Ayerto Moira being such an influence for me as a drummer and a percussionist, those colors, they just always, I was just always predisposed to bring some of that stuff along. And, and so that comes naturally? You can. Yeah, it kind of just came, came. And I played congas a lot for like 20 years in the dance classes. So I'm a pretty decent conga player. So, you know, that's another percussion i guess right. but it's a drum but yeah that's interesting because yeah. i mean that's what i you know we were talking about the the wicked grin album and right and for, for me when i hear that album i hear a lot of percussive beats right. yeah and, there are there's there's shaker you know intense shaker that's john hammond's wicked grin that was produced by tom waits it was all tom waits songs except for one song the last song was the staple singers right right right. yeah i've been saved i think and were you were you did you, that was the first album that you worked with john hammond that, that was correct? our very first record with john yeah. and you're working on that because you were with tom waits is that correct yeah um i guess john was hoping that larry and i may larry rest in peace larry taylor that fantastic bass player one of my gurus he was he was around you know larry was in canned heat mm -hmm. he was you know he he quit high school and went on the road with jerry lee lewis i mean this guy seriously had his card punched he was the real deal so anyway larry and i got to be tom's rhythm section so that's sort of what john was hoping for and we were more than happy to come along and play with him yeah um what did you learn from larry um tom would always ask for these really exotic kind of drum beats and stuff and then larry would say yeah it still sounds like it needs a backbeat in there somewhere you know so larry would always be the voice of every man mm -hmm. you know he would be like the everyday joe as well as um he was exotic as well he wasn't just boom 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 you know he was he was creating but he was such a rhythmic force at the same time you know he didn't have to he didn't have to he played simple but he still played kind of complex at the same time but he was always full of drive and and forward motion and um i don't know i just pray that it rubbed off you know when he passed away i felt like every time i'd pick up the guitar i thought larry was because i love to play the guitar and i always feel like larry's kind of there going come on come on do that man <laughs> so i don't know i i just think larry as a you know I mean, I didn't even know people collected stuff so much. He collected art. He collected instruments. He collected old toys. I mean, he's amazing. You know, I, I just, I was opened up to a lot of things, even wine. You know, he was like a wine connoisseur. So hmm. um, we had to drink a lot of unique bottles of wine on the road with him. <laughs> he and John were such wine foodies. If If we go back to how you met, uh, James Harmon. James Harmon um, used to come around. He was searching for musicians, and he he would come around and hear this group, uh, Cats and Jammers, where I played with this guy Greg Carroll, and we would play at the Red Onion in Newport Beach. And James would come in, and he would had his eye on me, and also my good buddy, who also rest in peace, David Jariki, who was a phenomenal guitarist just amazing guitarist he was our first guitarist who just blew us away completely he is a, he is like a natural he is just complete natural just he, he was in the back seat of his car when he was five with a ukulele and by the time they got home he was playing five foot two eyes are blue and nobody ever they just 
him and the back seat and the ukulele and he he's one of these guys he, he seems like he can play even though he doesn't know the song he can still play you know it's ridiculous <laughs> it's just freaking ridiculous like some kind of sent from god savant you know just gifted like so gifted and everybody knew it when this guy played wow. magic so anyway david and i went ahead and played with james um things that kind of reached their end with with greg we'd been four or five years with greg and so um, we started playing gigs with James, and that's really where I ended up going into L.A., like I said, and playing through PA systems, you know, the Madam Wong's, the Whiskey, all the, bar, the clubs and bars around that people did, the Music Machine, and Club you, 88. Did These you are some old tour? places that aren't even around anymore, but yeah. Did you also tour... Then we started touring America, and James was the first one we ever went to Europe with. Yeah, Scandinavia, all over there, Belgium, Holland, Denmark. Did you have, like, goals set when you first started as a musician? I think think basically it was was just to get a gig, you know. Like like Mavis, she, she... she went downstairs one day and her dad was like, he's trying to make a, a an all male gospel group and nobody would show up to rehearsal. And so he got pissed and he just came home and he brought the kids down to the, to the living room and they started a band, you know, she didn't have to like go practice somewhere and, you know, go to school and then like hope she get a gig and then maybe another gig or maybe, you know, like six weeks later, maybe, or six months or, you know, she just like walked into a band and it turns out she's the star of the band anyway, you know, <laughs> for me, it was more like, yeah, you're 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 doing your thing, but you're just praying to get one gig and then get another gig, you know, little by little that actually did come about, you know, but it it took a while. It definitely took a while. You record a lot of albums with James Harmon. Right? Yeah, we do record quite a few now, yeah. So at that point, I mean, obviously things were happening and James mm-hmm. was happening. Um did that surprise you the I'm not sure if surprise is the right word, but you know, those albums, I think, did quite well. You know, that was, that was a, it was a really good thing for all of us. I was glad, you know, because that really was a, another level of education for me. And we, I really got into areas that I'd never been in because I'd basically been playing in bars, right. only bars. So areas you mean... Like, the, yeah, like like real concert venues. I mean, sort of club concert style venues. Um, and we peep, the newspaper would write about us sometimes. Maybe not always favorable. We weren't the darlings. We weren't like Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs. We weren't like the Blasters who were just could do no wrong in the eyes of the L.A. press. Robert Hilburn specifically. <laughs> but... We were like a musician's favorite band, and once, especially once we got Hollywood Fats in the band, right? Yeah, things really. And I would presume strong then, yeah. Just by his reputation, but I would presume that he was a force to be reckoned with. You know, we had been through so many fifth members with James. I was, I was pissed. I was like, "Fuck this! I don't want any more." And I didn't even want Hollywood Fats. Because I just didn't want to deal with another that a fats came to rehearsal and um and we we went out on a break and he was so freaking charming and so nice of a person. And then he was so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, just put him on any instrument and he he could play really well. So he was um he was a lot of help, actually. Yeah, because he had a lot of insight, and I was still, I was still learning how to, you know, work my way through twelve bar blues. You know, 
I mean, because these guys are coming from a pretty high level. And when you start listening to people like Fred Bilo and these guys playing behind Little Walter or, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson or, or Muddy Waters, this is this is magic. This mm-hmm. is these are the textbooks of our music. And these there's a lot. It may seem simple, but there's a lot in there. So Fats was way ahead of me as far as that. He'd already been um, Albert King's band leader, musical director and stuff. So he was like, he was the little Jewish guitar genius, you know, who didn't do anything but guitar and just excelled. You know, it was really out there way before any of us were, yeah. So I can't. It's hard for me to imagine that you didn't feel comfortable with the blues drumming when you had recorded so many albums with James Harmon. No, once we did all that, I did. Oh, okay, I, okay. I did. But in the beginning, there was still there are little bits. There are little bits and pieces of subtleties to learn, and that's where Fats really came in for me. Yeah. So Just, when when I look at your discography, like it's it amazes me how many albums. I have that you're on. Oh, yeah. And and few of them jump out. Like for whatever reason the Thunderbirds the the Fabulous Thunderbirds uh-huh. live album. Right. I don't know why but that kind of jumps out in in that. I mean it makes sense cuz you have a blues background. But it just seems that's more a heavier more rock blues. Yeah, than, no, they were definitely yeah, a little firmer, taking a much firmer approach, yeah. yeah. And then the other one would be uh Bruce Coburn. Oh, that was so funny. That was interesting when, yeah. Because he let me play the marimba on one song. He even apparently mentioned it in a book that he wrote that I played the marimba on one of his songs. Yeah, I it was. I just played a couple of songs, two or three, I guess, really. It were overdubs. I don't even, I'm not even sure if Bruce was there. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then, then the other thing is, touring with Smashing Pumpkins. Well, that was percussion. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> a percussionist as well as a drummer because it's almost easier to be the percussionist because the drummer has all the time. You're like the you're like the clearinghouse when you're the drummer. You, it all kind of filters through you. You have you're like herding cats, you know. It's like you're praying that everybody <laughs> plays pretty much in time so you're not like Okay, come on. Hey, you over there. Come on. Everybody, you know, you have you have a real specific responsibility as a drum set drummer. But percussion, you have more leeway. You have a lot more freedom. And you let that other guy worry about that. And all you do is just blend your little mojo <laughs> in there one way or the other. So what was it like to tour with the Pumpkins? Oh, it was great. I mean, I had, you know, timpani. I had metal i had shaking things i had timbali i had conga um had a whole thing of metal stuff that i would play so you know i mean you have crew i mean i just walk up and play when i'm done i just walk away they don't even want you around go away we're gonna pack it up you're getting in our way you know and with the pumpkins, you're flying around in a private jet, so you never walk through an airport, which, <laughs> as much as we flew, believe me, that was a real bonus. How long? We would sometimes fly two or three times a day. And if that meant us going through an airport to do it, man, that would have been taxing. But we just drove up to the airplane, got on the airplane, landed, got out, got in a car, drove away. It's ridiculous, you know, how easy that is <laughs> okay but when you get a taste of that life that way of touring what does that do to you well, i think that's when my my dark period came once i got done with that and everything was sort of like in a dwell or just like fell into a slump you know and um few years went by and i didn't die so i had to say well i gotta pull my ass out of this hole i'm in here you know no, no did I you, don't seriously, know. did you go through a dark period? I did. I actually did. It, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it had anything to do with them. I just think it was just my my cross to bear, my, right. my path, you know, and it was something I had to 
get got obviously got stuck in and had to work my way out of it. Yeah. And musically, what were you doing during the dark period? I'm not sure. I was playing some gigs here and there. I was probably playing in the local local bars and stuff, but um, teaching some, probably, yeah. And how did you get out of it? I just realized that, it, you know, what do they call crazy? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And so I had to change... <laughs> from doing what I was doing to right. something more positive, you know, a little more positive approach to things. I mean, it's a gradual process. You're kind of bringing yourself back to life. You know, you do a little more yoga than you did or walk around the block a little more often or sit down and practice, you know, rather than just stare at a wall or something. Yeah. D did you ever question being a musician? Well, it's tough, you know. I mean, when you when you're making your money at mu something you really love, and then it can treat you so rudely sometimes. And there's, you know, if you're in a corporation where you can advance, we'd be wealthy by now. But there's this thing with music where you're almost starting over every time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, one thing ends, then you're almost starting over again. Luckily. Now the momentum, I think, is to where there would the universe would probably and my skill at reaching out to people would end up like okay, I'll find another job or I'll create one for myself somehow. But I don't, I didn't have those skills. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. I just wasn't there yet. Yeah. But some people, some pe look. Hey, Tom Waits starts recording his own records when he's twenty or younger. I mean, some people are just born more courageous i guess you know tell me what you learned from tom waits that experience of playing uh, with him there's a ton of stuff the one thing i did really learn though when we first started was how to be completely uncomfortable and still make the music work <laughs> because he had me what we realized in in the aftermath like years later was that and even he realized this is that what he would sing me as a drum, because he would come around. It was really interesting because he'd come around and he would dance and kind of sing to me what he was looking for. And so I was really used to looking at dance teachers sort of move, watch the bodies move and listen to their cadence. And I wouldn't know what to play for them. So that that really, that was me. That That was him finding somebody that, kindred spirit that knew how to how to listen to him but what we realized was that he was singing like two to three to four drum parts that really needed to be do, done separately they couldn't really almost be done all in once right. you know i mean if you had all these things and a thing that sounded like steam going off and a clank and a this and a that but so even he learned that it was better to do these things get apart a solid part down, then add to that, right. and you end up with what he's singing. But we were so kind of naive about it all. We would try to, you know, but nonetheless, we would just boil it down to what what we could really get going in one track. And and sometimes that wasn't that comfortable to me because he's not letting me play any cymbals, and us drummers are kind of used to having that cymbal going, you know. So, okay. No symbol. That's cool. I'll get with this, you know, and then little by little, it just came to be second nature. Yeah. And it made you a different drummer. It did. It definitely opened me up to, hey, a little bit of drumming goes a long, long way. You know, really, sparseness can be really, really effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Simplicity. But Simplicity. that's a difficult thing. Yeah. People say that about our group with Mavis all the time. It's like, man, you guys make a lot of music for three guys. Well, yeah, we do. But you know what? It isn't because we play more notes. Because like my friend Mike Watt says, the more notes you play, the smaller your part gets. Mm -hmm. So you play big notes and let them ring. Right. Let the air do some of the work. And it does. The The music floats into the air and it's it's plenty. It doesn't need more. If there were more, it would be in Mavis's way. Right. Um, Tom Waits led to working with John Hammond, who is a legend in the blues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Tell me about that experience. Well, John is just a charming. Uh, he's a mensch, you know, and handsome, crazy handsome. <laughs> you know, when he started out, he looked like, he was 20, he looked like a damn Armani model. You know, he was like ridiculous, right? But And maybe the, one of the nicest guys. Just so charming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and he... He knew about me. He wanted me. And, and when I heard about him, I'm like, oh, hell yeah, let's do this, you know. So so I drive my I drive in my van up to, to San Francisco, you know, to, well, Marin, where, where we're going to record. I roll my van on the way. I got the flu the day we left. I got the flu the day I left. Mm-hmm. I got the flu. I'm driving up, trying not to pass out or you know and fell asleep got back in the road went across the road skidding the car went over on its side the, they came and turned the car back over the flu it scared the flu out of me <laughs> i was completely healthy the car actually ran better than it ran before all the da- dash lights came on better and I just booked it up. They said, don't you want to? Uh, I said, no, I just want to go. I got to go get where I need to be. You know, I had one window broken. You know, I had a whole car full of drums. I got up to the hotel, put a put a tarp over the door, shut the door, and then went to sleep and went to the gig the next morning, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to start with that. You know, like, <laughs> I rolled my car. Okay, let's go record a record, you know. <laughs> I just, everything I said was excellent, excellent. You know, I'm just like, yes, yes. <laughs> but it worked out. It worked out. And then they found out later and I am said, yeah, you're right. I rolled the car. <laughs> but literally, the flu was gone. <laughs> And I was hurting. I was, you know, that whole thing with your, your body is so sore and your back, your spine is a mess and everything. And it literally knocked the flu right out of me. I don't wow. even know if that's possible, but I felt fine. And the thing, the thing of it was too, is that I was nervous because, okay, I'd been I'd been hired by Tom to do this tour and then he unhires me. And so I was a little bit oh. this for the mule variation tour. And so I was like a little bit, <sighs> I wasn't pissed, but I was like, I'm coming up here after being kind of thrown out, thrown out of the bus for a second. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to put my best foot forward here because I don't want to, I don't want to cause any problems here. I don't need to air my problems here. I got a new chance here, so we're going to be good. So then I get the flu and I'm like, Jesus Christ. Now I got the flu. I'm like, I'm like contagious. I'm going to come up here. I need to hug somebody. Here, have the flu. Here, you have it too, you know? So there was just a lot going on in my mind about getting my ass up there and doing a good job. When he fires you, does does one give a reason for that? Or I mean, I don't I don't know how this works. So. Well, he 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 wanted somebody who was more of a marimba player and a drum player second almost. Okay. And so, my marimba skills weren't where he wanted them to be, and so, you know, artist license is a bitch, man. Mm-hmm. You know, but you gotta respect it. I respect it in them, and I expect the same in return. Right. And so so I just had to suck it up. <laughs> I was in a recording session, you know, with Jennifer Magnus, and I get this call from Tom. I'm like, okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> Go back. Okay, let's make a record now. <laughs> I'm like, woo. <laughs> Has that happened Many times, so has it no, ever happened? No, not before? really. A, a couple of everybody's had something, you know. I've, I've been on an, another session where they were really, they didn't know really know what they were doing, and and I ended up leaving because of it. But no, I and luckily it doesn't happen. It has only happened a couple of times. Right. Yeah, and I how, think it happens to everybody. And but, how do you deal with that? You just kind of lick your wounds and. 
carry on. Yeah. Because yeah. it's weird because you recorded a number of albums with them, right? So it's not oh, like... Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's just like... It's like we're buddies. It's like, look, dude, don't be mad. Right. I'm just not going to hire you this time. You know? I'm sorry. Simple as that. Yeah. You know, it isn't... So... You know, just the way it is. You know, it just... It just... That's how people's ideas you know you have to just give um license to the way they want to do things but then something else could just change immediately oh, yeah, with a phone yeah, call absolutely right? yeah oh i mean when we were younger we we went to uh colorado springs and with our with our band and we were a good band but we took their bar from a two thousand dollar a week bar to like four hundred dollars a week because we we weren't telling jokes or we weren't wearing purple jumpsuits with white belts and white shoes, you know? So, so we, we got run out of town by gunpoint and just went back to California. Then we get a call to go up to Santa Barbara and play at the Yankee Clipper for two weeks. We ended up staying there for four or five months, six nights a week. So, you know, it just depends who you're playing for partly so we were like horrible in colorado springs which was a terrible gig anyway till we went to this place where it was just like shangri-la in fucking santa barbara are you kidding (laughs) and all the young people and it's just uh it was uh, we were hey it was great Uh, so how do you make sense out of all this well you don't well you, you know it's just it's just another thing i mean Okay, so we give Tom Waits artist license to choose this. Well, you give this club owner a chance to choose. Right. If if a band comes in and loses him sixteen hundred dollars a week or whatever it was, well, we're not the right fit. So let's just go home. So we didn't want to go home because we wanted to work, but we had no choice. But then we get hired up in Santa Barbara. And we're we're there for two weeks, but it turns out to be five months because we're like the stars of the city. So I guess you got to play for the right people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to find your audience. Going further down a little bit, you meet Rick Holmstrom. Right. Tell me how that happened. Well, Rick Rick was was sneaking into bars to hear us because he's he's the he's the baby of our group, right. even with Mavis. He's he's 10 or 12, 15 years younger than myself. So um, he would sneak in to hear uh, James Harmon. And uh, and then he gets a job. Um, he and Zach Zunas are playing guitar for um, Bill Clark. So then we kind of cross paths because we're playing gigs together sometimes and stuff, you know, on the same bill. And... Um, I don't know. We just sort of, you know, I, I started out actually doing photography for his his album covers before actually was playing music with him and then ended up playing a couple of tracks on one of his records. And. Uh, yeah, we just. Steve McGallion and I kind of split the gigs with him, you know, we, we were both play drums for him at times. So that was. And he was just part of the scene. You know, mm-hmm. he was then then he moved on to playing for a lot of years with Rod Piazza, which was a big deal as well, and doing a great mm-hmm. great job of it. And um it just it just sort of it just sort of continued to um we just continued playing gigs in, in the bars and places around, hotels and stuff. And uh it just so happened that one of the gigs was opening for Mavis on the pier, the Thursday night series at Santa Monica Pier. They have a concert every Thursday in the summer. Right. And uh, 10,000 people show up to these things. Yeah, it's a big deal. And so we're playing, and we do our 40 minutes, and we're like, okay, cool. Oh, keep playing, keep playing. <laughs> Hour goes by hour and 15, hour and a half. Finally, we're like, okay, we're done. What is going on? 
So Mavis's band is not there. So basic long story short is we meet Mavis, like she's the coolest chick on the planet. Amazing. So we just figured out some songs that we could play and we went out and played for her. We just got up and played behind Mavis. And then finally when her band did show up, we just put them on our gear, set them down behind the drums, plug in your amps, go, you know. But her her management was already trying to get her a new band. And I I went as I left the stage, I made a point of going past Mavis and thanking her. And she said, make sure my manager has your phone number. So we were kind of like in the, in the tube. We were kind of like at, at the point of, we may slide into this gig here. Who did, knows? You did know? you get a sense of what it was like to play with Mavis from that gig? Like did, with, things clicking well oh yeah i mean it, it went fine you know um you know she she's a natural mm-hmm. it just it, it just flows with her honestly yeah so um but it was also fast it was also quick you know we were we just got out there and did it right. you know it wasn't any <laughs> no rehearsal know, not not <laughs> yeah yeah and and it went fine. It went. We played the weight. We played Freedom Highway. We played Circle Be Unbroken. Nothing that particularly hard. But had you played play. any of these songs before? No. <laughs> well, I mean, probably played the Circle Be Unbroken. Wait, wait. But Freedom Highway, that's Staples. Yeah. And that's Pops wrote that, and I never heard that. We'd heard the weight, of course. Yeah. But, you know, man, you just, you know, especially when you know you just got to go out there, you just make something happen, make it, you know, get through it. I don't know. I don't think it was bad. I think I've heard some tapes of it. It wasn't wasn't bad at all, you know. I mean, it isn't as good as we are now because we played a bunch, but... (laughs) But it's crazy when you think about... Oh, it's nuts, yeah. That one moment changed your life, right? I mean, I don't know if it's, it's, it's no, absolutely. It's, it's kind of like goes along with the magic that is the staples magic. Yeah. There's serious magic going on here. Pops is a visionary. Come on. Black groups don't do Bob Dylan songs. They don't do <laughs> Buffalo Springfield, you know? Yeah. Pops was way ahead of the curve as far as being open-minded. They were like, they're more like black hippies, Baptist hippies, you know, because they were more open-minded. And that led to them being more universally accepted, which is all they were ever about. They were the first million-selling gospel record in America, Uncloudy Day. They were 20 years really really popular gospel group Mahalia Jackson took Mavis under her wing she's Mahalia Jackson's protege Mm -hmm. the grand dame of American gospel this is this is ridiculous how popular they discovered Dr. King in a church down south they went to his service and pop said this man can really speak we gotta line up with this guy and so Pops talked to him at length after the church was over. Next thing you know, everywhere he went, they went, they sang, he spoke. Mm-hmm. He marched, they marched. These are the real deal. This is black and white TV. This is people being thrown in jail for marching. This is, this is you can't drink out of that freaking drinking fountain. Mm-hmm. You can't wash your clothes there. You can't sleep in that hotel you sleep in that colored hotel down the street or whatever it was this is some serious bullshit in our culture and this is this is the graciousness that we're provided with when you come around and you see what a beautiful person mavis is after going through all of this she's like she's like a beacon of love love light light uh, you know yeah. 
So yeah. do, you, do you ever feel the, the sense of responsibility or the, the weight of continuing that legacy? <clears throat> Is that too heavy? Is that No, I don't think so because, you know, some of the songs that we do now, especially with the newer records, has gotten more and more political, you know, mm-hmm. and more and more in people's faces about no time for crying. We got work to do and all these little not so subtle or subtle, you know, lyrics and what have you. It's like she's as political as ever, you know, and I think I think we all feel that we guilt by association this is us you know we have to step up musically what have you learned from working with her well even though you may have played a song a hundred times and you got to realize she's probably played that song a thousand times and that she brings it like she just learned the song like she just so fresh Mm-hmm. and new to it and you don't have time to be like why in the hell can't we do some other song you need to do what's on the set list and bring it and I was never a curmudgeon anyway but when you have somebody who brings the message so strongly you learn you you learn to be that you get you get the luxury of having that education from her yeah and a little little wears off on you every night mm-hmm. so there's and then you know we've we've learned a lot about just dynamics because you know mavis isn't she's 80 we don't think she needs to shout all night she doesn't need to when we play quiet she she has the people in tears. She's such a beautiful singer. So we've learned we've learned to control our energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've always thought that your band is the perfect band from Mavis. You know, like it just to me it fits perfectly. We think it fits pretty well too. All in all, we really do. And know? did you? When did you realize that? Well. I guess we always kind of thought it was pretty good, but then we we made our first record, which was a live record, and we weren't even that thrilled about it because it kind of got thrown together. But this is at the hideout, is it? The hideout. Yeah. Hope at the hideout. But when I listen back to it, it's pretty damn good, and people would come and talk really fondly about the record continually, and at a point. I just let it go. I said, stop, stop bitching or whatever. And realize people are into this. They are full tilt digging what's going on here. So between that and just, just the feeling of, well, we're here. (laughs) We're the ones that are here. So we're just, we're just working to do the best job we can and what have you and that all just kind of starts being like well this is our life this is what we're doing and people are responding so you can't really take it away from us you know don't blame us we're just here you know we 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 got chosen to do this and so we're stepping into it and we're doing the best we can well you do such an amazing job no i thank you but i mean you know it's just like at a point it's fine to be humble, but it's also you got to kind of like just say, okay, well, here we are mm-hmm. 13 years later, you know, several albums later, we won a Grammy. We've been nominated for Grammys. We must be doing something <laughs> right here, right? Yeah. So not to be big headed about it, but just, hey, good. God bless it. Thank you. And we're so grateful. It's it's the gratitude is just always we're grateful yeah, yeah. well that's well yeah. deserved yeah. Um, the other thing that I find interesting in your discography is the work you did with David Lynch right that was fun tell me how that came about well um, that's that came about because I have a friend Dave Alvin you know who used to be in the Blasters yeah, now yeah. has his own group for years and years but he had already been working with David and um, 
they wanted to get some drums and bass going. So they got a hold of Dave got a hold of me and then he got a hold of uh, Don Falzone, who now lives on the East Coast, but really great bass player. And so um, we would go and um, David would have some ideas, might have some lyrics and what have you. And um, we would just sort of jam. We were, he was Johnny Rocket, I think, was the movie he was trying to, to make some music for. I don't think that ever came out. But <laughs> but then there's this turning point where David Lynch needs uh, some music for his movie Firewalk With Me. And Dave Alvin is in San Francisco and won't come home early. So David Lynch is not happy. Just so happens that David Jariki, now we're going back to James Harmon and mm -hmm. the guy I grew up with plays guitar, happens to be traveling in America. He lives in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. He just happens to be here on that day. David, let's go play for David Lynch. Okay. <laughs> so Dreeky and I go up with Don Falzone and um, Andy Armour, a keyboardist, to Capitol Records, famous studio, mm -hmm. ridiculously famous. And um, we make these this song called The Pink Room, which turns out to be kind of a coffee house favorite from the hipsters in that in that era in the early 90s. So we make we make this cool kind of boom 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 kak, kak, boom kind of a triplet blues beat. And uh, next day we are on the set acting like they call it the side backlining sidelining something where you you're the musicians acting oh, okay. like you're playing yeah so they're playing our music through this pa system you know like really loud and there's smoke all over the room and lynch is more smoke more smoke and then it just turns out this is the sexiest scene in the whole movie where the girl on stage has to strip naked every time we do a take. And there's couples making out in all forms of underwear, dress or undress. And it was just the wild, wildest sex scene of the whole movie. We happen to be the music for this. <laughs> so for two days, that was our life, you know, acting like we're playing and these people are like making out and stripping and all this shit going on. And, um, David Lynch realized what a freaking great guitarist David Jariki was. So Dave Alvin was kind of like back burner stuff now because he's a great guitarist, yeah. but David Jariki is like a, a little guitar god. Seriously, this man was gifted. So then we would go in and make more, more music with David Lynch. He would... He, he would, we would write songs in this kind of like, we'll play a beat. Well, try some chords. I don't even know how we even ended up with songs. It was such a, you know, it was just like, it's such a shot in the dark, but it, it worked. And then, and then at the end, David Lynch would come up with these lyrics and hand them to David Jariki. And he would just stand in front of the mics and make up a melody, sing the words. Incredible. So there's a record out finally that came out. Well, the thing was that David Lynch had a divorce, so the whole thing kind of went hmm. down. So 10 or 20, 15 years later, David Jariki passes away. Then David Lynch and Dave Jariki's widow decide, let's do, let's bring out that music that we did and make a record. So it's Foxbat Strategy was the name of the group. And... David Lynch presents David Dreeke and Fox Bat Strategy. And so there's like six or eight songs that's on this record of the work that we had done. And um, it was a great, great, great experience working with David. I mean, he really, honestly, he's one of the best drum mixes. He would turn those drums up. You know, a lot of times some of these blues guys, they don't want to... 
get the drums where they really belong in the mix, you know. So um, that was pretty pretty fulfilling experience, you know. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, I have to wrap this up, but okay. I was looking forward to meeting you. And, and as you, thank you. Yeah. And it's been a total thrill. Like I said, I you know I was looking at CDs that I could bring Tabby sign. And I have like a lot of them that feature you. And um, sometimes it's dangerous to have expectations or to look forward to interviews because they don't live up. But this has been wonderful. So oh, thank, thank you, you so much for doing oh, this. Oh, yeah, you guys have been great. Can I just ask you one final question? Oh, sure. Tell, me, tell me, when you look back on this whole journey, because it's been an amazing journey, right. just yes. playing two days yeah. in front of naked people. That's something. Yeah, else. I know. It's crazy. I know. <laughs> but how do you look back on it? And and you know the fact that tonight you're playing Mavis, and you know it's a it's a, an amazing ride. I think. Yeah. No. I I. You know I know what it's like to not have a gig. And so, I always feel fortunate, and. I you know there's certain insights that I've had. As, as sort of were in me all along, but I feel like some on certain things I'm the last to find out. I feel like I, you know, everybody else knows more about stuff than I do sometimes, and so I have this feeling like, hey, it's all gravy because, man, from where I came from, <laughs> from from the from the not knowledge. It maybe had something inside of me that obviously helped grow all this or sort of move it along. But to come from a, a place of not knowing what was really happening to where I am now, it's all it's all gravy because, like I said, I always felt like the last person to know sometimes. You know, everybody else knows more about stuff, and I'm always playing – I feel like I'm always catching up on, certain, on a certain level. Right. So I'm just – I'm I'm truly grateful to to have had as amazing ride as I've had so far and you know I'm not I wasn't the guy who could make records when he was 20 but I definitely have the idea of making my own records and you know have a studio I work with other people in my studio and stuff as well so um, hey you know for all you late bloomers out there <laughs> Come join the club. Well, thank you so much for yeah, doing this. Thank you, man.